Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 27 of Drop the Needle in the Haystack, a podcast where we use the Forgotify web app to take a listen to tracks on Spotify that have never been played before, and then we talk about them. And we're going to be doing a little bit about that today, but sometimes we get the chance to have really awesome guests on, and that's one of those chances today. Matt, could you take it away? Yes, I'm very happy to introduce our guest, Jordan Van Hemmert, and a little bit about him. Dr. Jordan Van Hemmert is a Michigan-based saxophonist and composer lauded for his skills as a modern jazz improviser. Jordan's music, including his album, which we'll be talking about a lot today, called I Am Not a Virus, is deeply informed by his political consciousness, employing his distinctive compositional voice to address issues of race and social justice. Uh, do, uh, Dr. Von Hemmert proudly asserts his Korean-American identity through his music, sometimes reharmonizing traditional Korean melodies into a contemporary jazz idiom, and he's currently serving as faculty at Hope College as assistant professor of music instruction in saxophone and jazz studies, and he is also a Van Doren artist clinician and Selmer Paris saxophones performing artist. So, Jordan, if it's cool for me to just call you Jordan, uh, yeah, say, hi of course. To, say hi to the people. Hey, everybody. Uh, Eric, Robbie, Matthew, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking about music. Uh, and you know what? I've, I've been on a couple of other podcasts talking about uh, my music, but I've never gone through it with anybody and like actually listened to it uh, in real time and, and gotten impressions. So this will be really fun. It'll be like a just a really great hang, I think. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Yeah, we're just a, a few music nerds here who like talking about I don't know. I usually talk about harmony. I think Robbie, Robbie talks a lot about lyrics, though. Do I? Is that my yeah, thing? Your thing is like you like it when they say the title of the song I, in, the, in the track. I do like that. That is one of the good things to do for it. Here's a tip. If you're writing a song, have the person say the name of the song. That <laughs> makes it good, I think. <laughs> That's like oh, I love that. criteria that Robbie needs for a song to be good. Don't pretend like it doesn't get you every time it happens. <laughs> You're not about this. <laughs> uh, okay, so now we'll be taking a listen to actually the title track of Jordan's album, I Am Not a Virus. So I Am Not a Virus, and we'll be starting at about like the 710 mark. So Robbie, go ahead and press play on that one. Yeah. So Jordan, was there anything that you wanted to tell us about that? Or would you rather us just like throw our opinions out there? I just want you guys to throw your opinions out there. Robbie, you're a resident jazz guy. Why don't you start us off? Because oh, I know put, you must be putting a lot on me today, Matt. Uh, asking a lot of me. Hope I don't uh, misuse any words in this one, too. But uh, <laughs> no, it. well, I like I said, I, I think really good album. I really enjoyed listening to it. And I think Thank you. what... Uh, uh, what I this section and what a lot of it reminded me of, uh, and I don't know if this was on on your mind or not, but uh, a lot of Woody Shaw's albums like Rosewood, I'm thinking of that kind of instrumentation, and I think the trumpet player, his playing reminds me a little bit of, of Woody Shaw and, and his solos and stuff. Uh, and yeah, I think it, it, some of the the songs have that sort of open slash chord sort of 
sustained section, which I always associate, probably maybe a little too much, but I always associated that with Woody Shaw's groups during that time. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I'd be interested to hear about, you know, your influences, especially in terms of composition and in, in your own playing. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's really cool. And I love Woody Shaw. So that, that notion is really flattering to me. Um, I, you know, and actually so does Robbie, the trumpet player, um, on the, on the record, he is a huge Woody Shaw fan. He also really loves Freddie Hubbard. Yeah. So the, I mean, between those two trumpet players, the, they're a pretty significant inspiration, but for me, for this particular section, I, um, you know, I was really going, um, you know, when you take something and just completely like deconstruct it at a, at some point, um, cause I want, I wanted a really like, like a significant shift before the drum solo at the end. And so to me, this section, um, like I write really programmatically most of the time and I honestly don't really care about how cheesy that makes me. <laughs> um, I, I, so this is kind of like um, meant to embody like the resilience that I think, um, you know, that we have uh, because things can get completely like torn down and, and um, really, really to, to me at least, um, they can get very, you know, uh, muddled and 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 well in the you know in the from a like from a the standpoint of the topic matter of the song right i'm not a virus like we we i mean this has been this has been a year it's been a century it's been a couple centuries and um just this idea that you just you claw your way up and you keep getting up and you keep fighting and and that's kind of what this part of the song means to me that i think that comes across like really really well like really strongly because yeah you you call this a break and or like a breakdown and i always you know from a songwriting point of view and a compositional point of view kind of like how we manage the like the energy of the song like the dramatic arc where we place the the moments of of like high points versus low points um to me getting your low point in the middle of a song kind of halting and slowing down that momentum and then picking it back up again it's like such a it's such a tricky balancing act of like how to manage that and now hearing you say that because i wondered exactly how programmatic this song was going to get given like it's just an intensely difficult thing to try and imagine putting into music um i think that the, the coming together aspect of it really comes across because of that repetitive uh, ascending motive in like the piano, but then also like the way that it like it gains momentum, the, the, the instruments come together. I think that's really like, for me, cool to know as the listener. Yeah, this, this section of the piece is, is really beautiful. You have that really simplified melody in the piano where it's just it's in its most bass form right we're hearing the melody and there's nothing else really going on around it it's grounding us there and then we have this huge flourish to go into the heterophonic kind of retexturization through the saxophone and trumpet lines um and it's it's really cool it, actually what it made me think of as like an orchestral musician is and matt uh, and i'm sure everyone here but you know, when a composer is composing um, something for orchestra and when specifically, 
and they write a melody and they have more than one woodwind playing it at a time. You know, it's not just a clarinet or an oboe or bassoon solo, you know, like let's say all four principal wind players are playing it at the same time. The end goal isn't to have the same melody played by four musicians at once. The main goal is to basically create a new sound, right? A new timbre where the blending of these instruments creates a sound that could not be achieved it, you know, that's more than the sum of its parts, right? And I feel like that's really what we get when we get this huge flourish into the saxophone and trumpet lines. The sound becomes more than the sum of its parts. It's not just a trumpet and saxophone solo or a saxophone player playing a solo at the same time. It is a retexturization and a, and a re-tambering of the line. And it's, it's very, very beautiful. It's very cool to hear. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, I, from a harmonic standpoint and a melodic standpoint, I think absolutely, you know, every, everything that you all are saying in terms of like adding the texture and, and really honestly, what I, where I got that was, um, I, I listened to a lot of blue note records. Um, I think a lot of people do. That's not like a unique thing to me, but that was something that I really wanted to bring out in the, um, like in my compositional style for this record. Um, because I, I feel like a lot of those records, they are creating a lot of different textures and a lot of different colors um, with really what is honestly a pretty simple instrumentation. You know, the jazz, the, the tenor and trumpet quintet is not a, I mean, it's not very compli complicated. It is, it is not a large jazz ensemble. And so to make different colors with a limited um, palette is really, really fun and, and really, uh, to me, pretty rewarding. So Eric, I'm really glad you, you know, picked up on that. Now, that does actually bring me kind of to another question or something I, I was thinking about. We've talked a little bit about the, you know, the songwriting and all the craft that goes into these compositions. But, you know, one of the things, especially like you mentioned, in, in a smaller jazz uh, outfit or, or quintet, a lot of it is is less arranged there's a lot more emphasis on the the improvisation uh and, and you know those are all great in the album too and i was just wondering what sort of your thinking in terms of you know how do you rehearse this how much rehearsing is enough or too much because i know some you know band leaders don't want to rehearse like you know everybody knows famous miles davis doesn't want to rehearse just play what you hear and you know of course other people are really crazy about it and i was just wondering if you sort of had you know, fell somewhere along that spectrum. Yeah, um, for me, I like to, first I, I like to know the musicians that I'm going into the studio with or, or going on the bandstand as it were. So that, that's the first thing for me. I really like to know people because then I'll like write for people um, and I'll write things with that kind of like borderline like Ellingtonian kind of a, a concept. Um, so that, I mean, that's thing number one, but thing number two, frankly, I just like everybody to be really comfortable with one another. Um, I often think about, you know, people's styles who would complement uh, one another. Um, and so like when I, when I was putting this group together, you know, I thought about, you know, Rob Smith is somebody who I really wanted to have on the record. He's a, a great trumpet player. Um, and I thought who might match his energy, his intensity and, and on the drums, that was my friend, Andy Wheelock. Um, and Andy and I have played a lot together. 
um, and his like his style, his ability to like take something in the moment and um, and create something new and move the music forward is is a really really important skill I think. So to to give a more direct answer to your question, I mean we didn't rehearse a whole lot for this record, but I went in really familiar with pretty much everybody and really very I've I've played pretty extensively. Um, and Lisa and I work together actually a lot in a duo setting. Um, so that, I mean, there is a familiarity there. Honestly, I, I would love the idea of, um, of playing in a group for like a year and just, you know, touring and, and, um, and really, really getting to know a, a certain group of players. Unfortunately, uh, COVID really did not uh, allow for that. Right. Yeah. It makes all so, the plans sort of harder that way. It really does. And so that was something that I had to consider uh, without a doubt. But I knew I wanted to release this record because I knew I had something to say with it. And I knew that that something to say was really urgent because, I mean, I don't know if you guys uh, uh, maybe are, are familiar with this, but like Asian American jazz musicians, there are not a ton of us. And so our voices are you know, I won't really say they're marginalized, but it's just that sometimes they go unheard. And um, it's getting better, it always is. Um, and there's like a bevy of important Asian American artists um, to name just a few, John Arabagan, wonderful saxophonist, uh, Linda Mehan Oh, you know, uh, Vijay Iyer, um, Rudresh Mahantapa, you know, there are a, a, a whole lot, um, but, I mean, I just have to say that like that this this as an Asian American was a really important time for me to 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 say something to speak out. Yeah, I actually was wondering, like ever since I saw you announce this project and like the album uh, when it released, just out of curiosity, because this is a pretty, I would assume quick turnaround. Um, when did you start, you know, how long have you been putting this together? Like what, what did this whole thing kind of look like? Maybe just like a brief rundown of the timeline. Yeah, sure. So January, 2020 is when I booked the studio time and <laughs> not knowing Robbie's laughing. Right. Yeah. Robbie, Robbie's laughing because he knows where I'm going with this. <laughs> so uh, I booked the studio time in January, 2020 in March, the pandemic hit and I, you know, everything ended up happening. Um, I was seeing instances of racism, both from my own standpoint, but also from that of my students, my colleagues, friends from around the country. Um, and I started writing these compositions in May. And um, because for a while it was really, I mean, it was really hard. It was difficult to, to write much of anything. I, did, I didn't feel like I, like I could write uh, as much. Yeah. So then I, I finished these compositions uh, in, in June, kind of got to know them, edited them, gave them to the band, asked for feedback. Uh, and we went into the studio in July, um, mid-July. And so, yeah, it was a pretty quick turnaround. But again, um, sometimes I think that one of the best things is when the urgency of the moment creates a situation in which it forces you to um, it kind of forces your hand, actually. You know, it, it forces you to get ready for things that perhaps you didn't necessarily think you would be ready for. For example, 
I put off this record for a really long time. I've been wanting to cut a, an album for a couple years now, and I just never felt ready. But it was the urgency of this moment in time that made me uh, record this. It was the urgency of this moment um, where, I where I didn't care about being good enough anymore. I just didn't. I did not care about it. I just knew that I had something that I needed to say. And that something was this project. That's, that's yeah. really beautiful. And I think that, that also is something you know, related to, to the very power of jazz itself as an art form, right? It, it's much in the same way you're talking about in the moment, you know, you, you, you just sort of do it. And that's really what we're trying to get with our improvisation, right? Or seeing what lies within us when we're forced in the moment. And I think that's, you know, a really beautiful connection that uh, we have or you have with this album. Yeah, Thank you I so think much. It's, it's just really an interesting thing to think about and i think you know eric robbie and i we've talked about this in and out of the podcast you know like how art reacts to the world and like how artists in this case respond to um in a sense you know tragedy but also there's, there's just a lot going on right and uh, i'm 100 with you on like the man there was just that period of like writing felt impossible absolutely i, I had like a a few moments of like losing my projects and then like seeing things spring up or come come back to me um and it's been interesting to see like the discussion around being artists in a global pandemic right because at the very at the very beginning people were making all the jokes like oh now i'll have time to write so much music and then there's people who are yeah. like writing their covid songs and then robbie and eric and i joked about it because like we talked about the bad takes of like what's what's the no one cares about your pandemic blues album you know because <laughs> because that's it's a little i don't know sometimes a little insensitive but but what i'm getting at here is um i like the way you said the urgency of the moment because uh, a big another big reason that I, i've been thinking about this album lately you know as you said it's it's been a year but um we did unfortunately see that that um, incident of real anti-Asian violence, despite what I guess some media outlets refused to call it in in Atlanta. Which unfortunately, again, it it, it it's been a year. You know, it, it brings it all right back. And as much as I hate to say, unfortunately, it it just drives home the increased relevance of this album. Because of course, I want your album to be relevant, relevant, and of course, I want it to carry its message but obviously you don't want to be saying like oh this tragedy is keeping my artwork relevant right yeah and when i when i was talking with parma about about this project and i said you know okay what are we looking at for release dates they said well we're kind of looking at march 2021 and i was like really because, I mean, don't you want it to be a little bit more timely? Don't you think it would be good uh, to have it be a little bit more timely? I had no idea what was going to happen last month. I had no idea. And, and the other thing is, I wished, in hindsight, that it, it would, was outdated. You know, I, I wished that from the very bottom of my heart. And um, the fact that it, it was just as relevant as it was in July, uh, it, it 
really does speak to that this has been such an ongoing problem. And, and you know, I, I think it speaks to this idea of our short attention spans as a society. You know, I mean, people, I, I don't know if you all have seen this video. Um, do you, um, I, I think Anna Akana, um, she has this video that, um, in which she said six Asian women have died or um, been murdered. She said six Asian women have been murdered. That's right. Um, and two weeks have passed and people are moving on. So now what? And I, I felt that really viscerally. Yeah. I mean, again, whether or not this makes it into the podcast, um, right. I, I think, you know, you and I both and um, all of us, everyone here, we're probably all feeling that it's almost like what's next, you know? And in the media cycle, I mean, I just saw last night, there was that shooting in Orange County. And already, none of this is to say like, which tragedy is worse. It's not like, you know, they're climbing on top of each other, competing for the, the top spot in the media headlines. But like, the, the our, almost like our memory for tragedy has just been like, exhausted <laughs> at this point yeah because since the atlanta shootings there have been two completely unrelated shootings within the span of two weeks yeah two the, weeks yeah yeah the the incident with the uh the luxury uh building in what was it new york city right yeah 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 that that one yeah yeah where that woman that was her own apartment building right it, that was, was her right own there. apartment building right in front of yeah. her own apartment building and the doorman yep. literally closed the door on, on her while she was being attacked. Yep. Horrifying. It's I mean, just, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. It's like sensory overload at this point, you know? Yeah. But Well, and we have access to everything right now. Yeah. Like as soon as things are happening, we immediately see something, you know, about it. I think about that with George Floyd. You know, as soon as that happened, we had... I mean, we had video. We had bystander video from that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. Um, yeah. That of the effect of news. Me, news media now is instant, right? It's like you, you're almost getting live feed. And I, I remember reading. I don't think it was a Times article because this would be too like good for the New York Times. <laughs> but it was. <laughs> it was basically like. Um, what are the effects of basically seeing her? Sorry, I skipped. Um, I was reading something about like, you know, what are the effects of basically seeing our social media feed become uh, at the same time a flea market and then at the other time, like a live broadcast of, you know, like military coup and like violence, right? Of like the worst things happening in the world at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I really, that was a very eloquent way of putting it, saying like, you, you'd hoped that this wouldn't have been as relevant. But now as we're seeing like, you know, um, protests and, and, and rallies and demonstrations of, you know, stop Asian hate, stop AAPI hate, this, the, listening to this album, at least for me, and I'm sure for a lot of Asian Americans, um, it's been very cathartic. It's been really nice to have this thing to reflect on and and 
like that sense of musical community. And I guess that's maybe a good way to actually segue us, because I really want to talk about this one too, um, to yeah. Arirang and your decision to end the album with this Arirang interlude and um, this entire like song. So for this one, actually, yeah. can you can you actually give us a little forward about it? Sure, of course. And I have to say, um, that means a lot to me that listening to the record it has been cathartic for you um, because, because our community, Asian Americans, is, is who it's for. You know, I wrote this record so that there could be, you know, somebody, something out there during this time that said, I see you, I hear you, I'm there too, I feel this too. Yeah, I mean, literally, I think that the day that the shooting in Atlanta, that, I mean, it happened, I read about it at night, and then the next day I was driving with my girlfriend to just go pick up food or groceries, and I, I had this album playing in the car, and I was like, this is just what I needed to listen to at the moment. So, like, you know, thank you for Yeah, for I, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, to give um, a, a little um, info on Arirang and how it made it onto the album. So, I wrote everything on the record except for and, um, you know, I originally was going to do something else. Like I, I, I had another tune and that I was writing and, and working on and um, it came together just fine. And it's, it's, I mean, I'll probably record it at some other point, but Adirang kept, kept calling out to me. Like it, it, it kept it, the, um, in the weeks, and you know, maybe four or so weeks before the recording session, like it, it, it kind of permeated my thoughts, um, my inner ear, my mind's ear. I mean, I, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get away from it because this album for me is a reflection on what it means to be Korean American, and um, and so I was thinking about it, and I, I ended up, you know, just sketching down some thoughts. Um, sitting at the piano and figuring some things out. And uh, what, I, what I had originally intended to do was write one version of the song and then use the other tune that I was writing. But I quickly realized that I was going in too many divergent musical directions to form like a coherent thought, <laughs> just a single coherent thought. Um, and so I ended up writing the interlude um, because what I um, what I ended up you know doing was saying okay well maybe Sea of Tranquility can go right into Adirang and and maybe you know and so I wrote the intro the um, the interlude um, and I wanted the the bass player um, to play the melody there orchestrationally speaking because um, when I hear the bass and and of course I ended up asking him to bow this because I feel like it's a little bit more floaty and ethereal that way. But um, I, I originally had thought uh, for him to use vibrato and pluck the string somewhat similar to Kayagum's. Um, and so that, that was my inspiration actually for the, um, for the interlude, it just ended up going in a slightly different direction. Uh, but the, the, uh, the arrangement of the, the tune to me it was something that I actually borrowed um, from a, a teacher of mine, uh, the late Jerry Allen. Uh, and she has this great arrangement of Let It Be by the Beatles um, 
from a, a, just a really beautiful record of hers. And I, a record that I, st I just, I listen to it all the time because it shows her like lyricism and her like use of harmony. So I, um, you know, I used her arrangement of Let It Be as a jumping off point. And what I did with it actually was just to take um, like the first, so it's the first chord is like a fourth inversion seventh chord, um, a major seven chord. So I took that chord and used that as the foundation of the, the harmony because I liked how unsettled it sounded. Um, I wanted to take the listener on, on my journey of what it is like to be Korean American. I wanted like, cause you know, it, all is, it isn't always easy, particularly being an adoptee um, where you feel like you own neither culture. Um, it, it, it's like pretty tumultuous. And so I wanted the harmony to reflect that. And um, there's a much simpler harmoni harmonization uh, at, at the end um, and that is my, again, I write programmatically sometimes, but that's inner peace and being okay with who I am. Um, and, and so, but it, but it had to start in the, um, with a, a little bit of harmonic tension. And, and then I do just want to say that the beginning part, um, which I think we're going to listen to that. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Um, yeah. So the beginning part is another Korean folk song, uh, Half Moon. And it's the middle part of that song sped up. It's, it's in diminution, like the melody that's, that is in the saxophone. And the reason I did that is because that was one of the first Korean songs that Lisa and I ever played together. Uh, and it, it's always been a special song to me. It always will be a special song to me. And so I wanted to just kind of hint at that, um, kind of like the song is uh, winking at itself, um, like jazz musicians are so wont to do sometimes. So that's a little bit about, actually, that's a lot <laughs> about Adidas. <laughs> Do we want to take a listen from the beginning next? Yeah, why don't we listen from the beginning for this one? Because I'm sure, I mean, I know at least I have a lot to say. It's so good. Okay. Oh. Um, do you guys mind if I go first? Because I have like a lot. <laughs> please. Yeah, take it away, please, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's just awesome hearing you talk about this because I have, when I was listening to the album, and of course, I very conspicuously noticed the placement of Arirang at the end and like the treatment of the melody and all that. Because, you know, I've, I've done my fair share of Arirang harmonizations as well. And I loved 
hearing the stuff you had to say, like the the usage of the voice leading and like the descending line of the bass. Just so cool to hear those thoughts. I didn't know that little wink about the the Half Moon song though, Liv. But now that you pointed out, because I was like, what is that? You know. <laughs> but um, yeah. From a compositional standpoint, I I just love the reharmonization because I feel the same way about Arirang as you, because as as also a a Korean American adoptee, and I you took the words right out of my mouth, you know, feeling like we don't really have ownership over either culture, and you know, what right do I have to Arirang? But then at the same time, it it sticks with me all the time. I heard it once when I was a kid, and it, there was something about it. It just it just stays with you, and um, I've done two bigger arrangements of the song. And I think it's really cool, not only to hear reharmonizations of it, because this is like the standard arirang, but um, there's so many multitudes of arirang. And I know you mentioned that you saw, like I did a little performance of, of like um, some of the bigger variations on my Instagram. and But um, I, I, I wrote a project entirely around the the multitudes of arirang it again got coveted out of its performance i was gonna i was i think eric you might remember me like in january of 2020 holed up in my room for like a month writing this thing oh yeah i remember and uh mine i called it arirang anywhere because in my opinion it's the most fascinating to see how arirang changes according to the environment that it's in and like what it reflects to the people who are singing it and playing it and writing it. And yeah, I just love that your descending line was different from mine. That's just so cool. Yeah. My my descending yeah, sure. line, like my chromatic descent, it handles the rhythm differently. It sneaks different chords in. It's all just super cool to me. And I love the whole thing. I can't say how much of a big fan I am. So I was petrified when I showed this song to Lisa. I, I was like, as she's a, um, you know, 1.5 generation Korean American. And I, I was petrified when I showed this to her because I was like, please don't hate this. Please don't think this sucks. Please don't think that this was offensive, that I would do this. Um, and she ended up like, she loved it because she said, this is something that only somebody who's like Korean American could come up with because of like the you know, my, the rhythmic influence um, is Brian Blade. Um, I literally told my drummer, and again, this is part of this writing for people thing. Um, I said, hey, Andy, I know you like Brian Blade. How do you think Brian Blade would handle um, this song? And he said, this is the groove. And I said, okay. And that's the, the groove that's on the record. And, and um, you know, but I, I just think about, I, I think about all of like the racism, you know, that we deal with and particularly the things that are um, for us as for us as adoptees, like, again, we feel like we own neither, neither identity and, um, but the reality is we own both of them. Um, I am fully American and also fully Korean. And um, that is really special to me. And, and I thought, when I was a kid, I thought, if I'm going to experience the the things that, um, like if I'm gonna experience the struggle that, come, that comes with being Asian American, then I wanna experience the good stuff too. That I wanna experience the culture 
certainly want to experience the food. <laughs> um, all, all of those things that make uh, Korean culture so special. Um, and so this, including this song and especially making it last, um, the, just to say, all right, here it is. This, if you leave with nothing else, leave with this. Yeah, I love that statement. And like, yes, putting it last in the album. And then also you said it's got like, it's simpler, more standard presentation at the end. Because I forgot to mention, that's also exactly what I did <laughs> in my in my um, Arirang bigger arrangement is like it goes through its complexity and I started off like in a kind of more mysterious kind of setting. And then at the end, I go straight for, you know, unpretentious sentimentals of like my favorite, most beautiful way to put together like an iteration of, of this melody. Yes. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, it's just, it's so like, it's very empowering to, uh, to hear you say all that stuff and, and like talk about it. And especially, um, I didn't realize, although it makes sense now, that your pianist was uh, Korean American also, because when I had some musicians perform my Arirang arrangement, I had, it was an interesting group of musicians. I had um, like from Korea, Koreans, I had some Korean Americans, and I had uh, also just happened to accidentally throw in a Cambodian adoptee in there. And each of them, I think, cried during the first rehearsal. <laughs> so again, it's that I felt just as nervous as you did, and it's it's that it's very it's a relief, I guess. I don't know, but I'd love to hear now that I'm done <laughs> gushing. I'd love to hear from Robbie or Eric, whatever you have to say about this track. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely beautiful way to end the album, and there was something in there that i'm totally blanking on right now why don't we come back to me hang on uh robbie you go ahead i i had an idea and it's gone it'll come Once back again covering for eric as always picking <laughs> up eric slack uh that's my job on the podcast but <laughs> uh making fun of eric notwithstanding i i agree i i think you know i i i'm not much of an arranger or a composer but i can certainly appreciate all the the finer details that you pointed out there in the composition especially the bass line it's really interesting to hear and you know what i i i, I like programmatic writing you know it doesn't bother me i i enjoy it. and i think especially for um for jazz and for for a medium that's got so much so much sort of off the cuff searching it's nice to have sections that are very clear or are very concrete i think as a listener because it really helps i don't know just in general i i hope i think that helps connect when we have so much you know soloing going on uh, uh you know, outside of the tune uh but yeah and you know i wasn't familiar with this melody before uh, i listened to to the album but i think it, it's a perfect example of one of those songs or melodies that works really well uh well not just in jazz but across any genre it's very flexible and, and you know maybe jazz especially because we have a long tradition of taking songs and sort of repurposing them in different ways in jazz and i think this one kind of like maybe our very first track it's very or at least this particular arrangement very clearly had this rhythmic hook to it that like matt said just the way you can fit in the chords against the rhythm and against the bass line i think i could 
I can really easily see this is oh, there's a lot of musical things to this that make it very appealing to to create different versions. Yeah, and that reminds me, Robbie. I thank you. You have given me my thought back. Um, so whatever um, connection or whatever knowledge I have of this piece of Arirang comes through Matt, right? You know, because I've listened to your, I ended up listening to your lecture through Zoom, even though it was unfortunately canceled and in person. And, um, you know, we had talked about it, I think even back at the house before we all had to move due to COVID. Um, but it's the idea that you've taken this piece that is um, famous for having its different iterations based on, you know, the geographical location and different culture of that part of Korea. And you've integrated it so completely into your own medium. And I thought it was very interesting how I, I think you said your pianist said that this is something only a Korean American um, could come up with. And I, I just, there's just something absolutely so beautiful about that, about the evolution and the continuation and, um, and the integration of this song uh, and and the way that you did it and on the album and uh, it's just really incredible to hear you know and yeah that's that's pretty much what I wanted to say uh, but that leads me to another question actually for you it's something you brought up much much earlier uh, in the podcast and it's this idea and you know a lot of people had talked about this at this point but you mentioned how the need to create this album to get this music out there was so pressing that you overcame your prior feeling that you know i'm not good enough or i'm not ready to record an album yet you know this, this idea that you've been putting off an album which is just incredible to me because the end product this album is so incredible i mean the playing on it is phenomenal for everyone involved and so this idea that even at the highest level you know, we as musicians are intimately familiar with it, but I'm not sure how much of our audience is um, this idea of imposter syndrome, even at the highest level, this idea that, you know, we're not quite there yet, that we could still get better and then that the ultimate album um, will be better. So would you say that that's just been just something that you're continually working against that you're fighting against, I guess I should say? You know, um, I think part of it comes up from, or part of it, part of it comes from the environment in which I grew up. You know, I, I'm from a small town um, and you know what? I, I'm totally cool with that. Like I, I, I didn't grow up in New York City, like going to clubs or anything and, and things like that. Um, I just, I mean, I'm a, I'm a kid from a small town who loves playing saxophone and writing music. And, and you know, I, I, I'm always very, um, like it, it's very grounding to hear that people, like that the record resonates with people because when I put this out into the world, I was just like, okay, there it goes. I can't take it back. Um, and now it's out there and you know, people could love it. People could also hate it. <laughs> and, you know, um, my, my thought was like, okay, I'm at peace with that. And so the, the fact that people do come back and say things like, 
yeah, this really resonated with me, particularly my my Asian American friends and and um, uh, people who are saying, yeah, this is really important, and this is so like great to see somebody look doing something like this. Um, that that is really really grounding for me. Um, so to answer your question, Eric, it is um, it yeah. I mean, imposter syndrome. I feel like we all deal with that, and I I know so many incredible artists who who I would not even deign to be in, in the same you know room as and so many of them are affected by this and I think you know the nature of music itself invites this because you can be this incredible performer but music asks everything of you and we're human and no matter how good it gets music will always demand more. You know, it will always demand your everything. And what everything is to somebody at a given moment in time or in their life is, is really different, right? And it's really, um, and it changes. And that's part of what makes it beautiful and worth pursuing. But to me, um, I, I had waited for so long to try to be like good enough or whatever that means. But at the end of the day, I just realized nobody feels good enough. You know, like, like Charlie Parker w went into the studio to record Bird With Strings and he was terrified. He was afraid, like, he was just like, oh my gosh, the, the, all these, you know, all these string players are such great musicians. They're like, they're like gonna throw me shade, you know? And, and so, I think it's being accepting of the fact that we are continually works in progress. Music is a journey, it's not a destination. And, and to me, um, getting over that, like, you know, um, internal naysayer that was like, yeah, I mean, whatever. Uh, to me, it, it was, I mean, it's still a process that I go through. I went into the studio again last Saturday to record um, just a few songs um, for a compilation uh, album. And even then I was just like, oh man, could I really, could I get like another couple of <laughs> weeks with these, uh, with this music and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's, it's a continuous battle. Thank you. That was, uh, that was a really great answer. That was really well put. Um, and I think the part about coming from a small town uh, specifically really resonates, I think, with both Robbie and I, you know, <laughs> since we are both Ohioans and not particularly big town Ohioans is, is where we're coming from. Speak for and, yourself, uh, Cincinnati's biggest town in the whole world. <laughs> as far as I can yeah. see. As far as you can see, yeah. Right, I don't mean, see any other towns around yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> Looks pretty big from where I'm yeah. sitting. Yeah, all right. Um, that, I don't know if, uh, we necessarily need the time, like for podcast length, I still want to talk about Autumn Song, but I don't want to lose like everything else we've talked about. So should we go ahead and talk about Autumn Song? Because at the very least, I do want to bring it into the show. Sure. Yeah. Just so we, yeah, have it on the on the recording and we can kind of see 
how much time that gives us and how much time we want to put out on the episode. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, because uh, now also just logistically thinking, there will be a part, uh, Jordan, where if you happen to have, like, we're going to ask you, like, other projects or, like, oh, other, sure. s- other stuff you want to talk about. Sure. There will be yeah. a portion where we definitely want you to, like, you know, plug anything you want to, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Matt, do you maybe want to uh, introduce the autumn song, and then we'll listen and, and see where the conversation sort of takes us there? Yeah, sure. Um, and yeah, is autumn, so is this one from the beginning? or Just wanted to check chat for that also. I think we were starting at 15 seconds. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, to start like right at the tune. And I'll, I'll do my little spiel about it. Sounds good. Okay. Take it away. So uh, next up, we're going to listen to actually the second track from the album. So kind of moving in reverse now. But um, this one is titled Autumn Song. And this one just it really also left a huge impression on me when I listened to it. I even found myself asking like the silly question when I was in the car. Like this, I don't know this tune, do I? This isn't like a, an arrangement or a reharm because there was something immediately almost familiar about it. But why don't we go ahead and play that from uh, 15 seconds. Yeah, I was just immediately gripped by the melodic uh, rhythmic interest in the melody. I was I was just like so hooked by those tuplets in there. And I, I always love it when the melody has cool rhythmic interplay. And I guess I just wanted to ask you about like, you know, writing that melody or, you know, feeling it out. And I'm sure, Robbie, you probably that seems like it's also right up your alley, too. So like, yeah. what what? you guys think about melody and stuff like that well i definitely appreciate the melody for this one i uh like matt said i like that i guess i don't know what what gets me a lot in in composition is just the efficiency of musical material i'm always you know really interested to to look at how musicians or composers create ideas and, and when they're able to do it with with not so much notes or, or or get a lot of uh musical ideas or themes out of something that maybe is you know not so great and i like the the opening of this theme ba, da, da, da. and then again twice as fast i think is really effective uh, a really good combination of um and i guess i, I i've said this a whole bunch on this episode and i'm going to continue to say it but i don't know rhythmic phrasing the rhythmic phrasing is always something that sort of catches my ear first for songs for or music in general. And I think if one has a really, I don't know, the rhythmic idea, I think if it's good, then you can have like, you can get away with anything for your melody. And, and it, since the melody is also good, you know, yeah, it's double your double for your money. That's really funny to hear you say that uh, because those are all important, like considerations that I had when I was writing this melody. So, um, 
Yeah, really, honestly, it's something I, I tell my students. Sometimes I play games, you know, uh, <laughs> compositionally. And it's something I tell my students all the time when they're improvising. Don't be afraid to use a small amount of melodic material and see how much mileage you can get, up, get out of it uh, over the course of a solo. And so I decided that that was what I was going to do with this tune. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that same four note cell appears all over the place um, and purposefully. Um, and I, I decided that I needed to be okay with that. When I was younger in writing, I used to be afraid of repeating myself a lot. I used to be like, <laughs> be like, well, if I'm gonna, you know, use this idea, I need to write something completely new. Otherwise, that means I'm bad at this. Um, and and so uh, this is kind of me getting over that. <laughs> uh, and and of course, also me deliberately saying, okay, well, if I keep the melody notes the same, what can I change? Oh, I can change rhythm. Oh, I can change the harmony. Oh, you know, because to me, part of the fun of, you know, harmonizing a melody is that you can make the same melody notes sound different and have a different character based on the harmonic coloring that you use. Um, and that was something that I had a lot of fun with uh, in this tune. Um, and uh, so this, this particular composition, um, it, it's really coming from there. And then the other thing, you know, rhythmically speaking, that I really did enjoy doing in terms of like, you know, devices or, or whatever, is just playing with how much space the material was going to take up. So um, in the pickups to the bridge near the end, um, you know, it's taking up, oh yeah, okay, it's taking up a little bit less, uh, or a, shoot, a lot more space. Uh, and, you know, in the beginning and, you know, with the, um, the earlier phrases taking up a little bit less space. Um, and to me, like using spa space is a big consideration that I uh, took into account when I was writing this tune. Like, what do I want the space to be like? What, you know, what do I want the form to be like? You know, it's just, um, it's a pretty simple form, but it's kind of non-standard in that it's like, it's not AABA it, and you know, the, um, you know, things, come back and they also don't. Um, so yeah, those are a lot of considerations that I, I took into account. And um, this actually was a, a very fun song to write, um, but it was also a very aggravating song to write because um, in terms of like when I wrote the start of the song, um, like I got about, oh, I don't know, like eight or nine bars in and it just, it eluded me for a while, for like a, a week and a half or so. And then I wrote the rest, um, but it, it was, I mean, it was a very gradual song, this one. And that was frustrating to me and vexing at the time, but I'm really glad that it was because I, I um, like I, I, I think that the, um, what came out to me was I wanted to write something that was really fun to play over. And, um, and the, the band did confirm that for me. Yeah, it's a absolutely beautiful tune. And I actually had the exact same reaction Matt did when I first heard it. I was like, is this a reharm? Do, do I know this from somewhere? Like, and I think, you know, like, 
you know you've written something good, or at least I hope you know that you've written something good when, you know, you have like you people who have that reaction, like, wow, this is, you know, I know this, like, what is this? I, I can so easily connect with it immediately that I, I feel like, you know, yeah, this is, this is great tune. I know this one, you know, like love this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I looked it up even like, just to be sure. I was like this, I'm not thinking of like, you know, this thing, am I? And, but the thing is, I need to clarify too, or I should clarify. It's not like I immediately was able to be like, oh, this sounds like this. It wasn't like a, this sounds like that song. It was just familiar uh, for lack of a better word. Immediately. I agree completely. I think I know this, but I guess not. (laughs) So it's like almost, I don't know, tricked, tricked me. I wouldn't even say that, but yeah, the effect was really cool. Yeah, I think that, 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 well, part of that that efficiency of, or the idea of that efficiency of writing, I think, uh, plays into that because it, it's, I think maybe some of that comes from it's just such clear ideas, compositionally speaking, that it seems like, oh, of course, obviously, this is like something I know. All the ideas are really easy to follow. I must know what this one is, you know? Yeah, very purposefully, I sang this song. I was I just going to say I was this was the one that I was whistling and humming the most like later that day. I was like walking around being like do do do. Yeah, <laughs> I I, I sit down at the piano when I write everything, but I I sang this one while I was comping for myself basically. Oh, that's awesome. That that makes so much sense actually cuz that's another thing. I I think of this like a good melody is inherently singable, right? I like to think so. Like if you if you can whistle or hum a tune, then like, you know it's good. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I think most people would agree with that. You know, some twelve tone musicians aside. Well, because that's like it's a mean practice, but a lot of composition professors will do this. They'll be like, "Can you sing that? Can you clap it?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I I like hearing your your thoughts as a songwriter because I love that that. Um, you know making use of your material very purposely that's that's like just at the center of in my opinion most like good musical pedagogy (laughs) (laughs) well i appreciate that but um yeah at this point i think we can safely transition to like the if you have any kind of things that are on the up and up or things you've been working on lately that you want to talk about uh in the show Sure, yeah. Uh, well, the first thing and probably the most, like, I don't know, uh, forthcoming thing is that I'm doing a fundraising concert on April 8th. Um, and I don't know if this, I don't know when this is going to go live, but whenever it goes live, maybe it's before, maybe it's after. But I, uh, so there's that concert that I'm working on, um, just trying to raise money for the National Asian Pacific Women's Forum. Um, Asian National Asian Pacific Americans Women's Forum, something like that. I need to get my acronyms correct. But anyway, uh, I'm doing that fundraiser and um, that's a really special cause to me because it's a reaction to what happened on March 16 uh, near Atlanta. Uh, so that was, that was the first thing. Um, second thing, I've got a couple of projects in the works. Um, actually, I'm, I'm working on um, like an, uh, like doing some more arranging 
like a, a project that's a little bit closer to arranging um, for some more orchestral uh, instruments, um, kind of like a not like a a birds would a bird with strings copy, but also like it's definitely coming from that like place in terms of instrumentation. Um, so those things uh, right away. Um, I was just on a record uh, with a singer songwriter that I uh, kind of enjoyed putting down some saxophone on. Um, just little projects here and there, trying to trying to stay, you know, trying to keep making music during what is admittedly just a, a very non-ideal time in which to do it, um, because it's it's what makes me feel alive and it's what keeps me feeling uh, like a whole person. That's great to it's great to hear um, about all the upcoming projects. And just to clarify, the fundraising concert is this the We Are Not a Virus? Uh, yes. Concert? Yep, that's the one. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. I saw Van Doren shout that out earlier this week. It was yeah. awesome to see. And yeah, awesome. Um, that handles all like our podcast talky stuff, except for our very last thing, which we didn't tell about you because it's always just kind of fun to spring it on people. Is uh, what if what stuff have you been listening to? What's like an album or a song that you've been listening to lately <clears> that you've been like really just hanging out with? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I, I have a couple answers for this. Um, I have a couple jazz-related answers, and I have a couple non-jazz-related answers. And so my, my jazz-related answers are, um, I am really checking out um, this these two records, uh, well, three records that I have really loved over, over time. Um, 1957 by the Art, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, um, featuring Johnny Griffin on the tenor saxophone. Um, a great record by Diego Rivera called um, Indigenous. Uh, it's his new record. I love all the music on it. And of course, Diego is a just a ridiculous player. Um, Ready for Freddy, uh, the Freddie Hubbard album is one that I've been checking out. Um, and uh, this is kind of an old classic that I just I can't stop listening to it. Uh, it's Hank Mobley's Soul Station album. Uh, I just, I can't get over that one. Oh, and then the one that I recently discovered is uh, um, Grant Green's I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, that that record is is uh, really, really um, some outstanding, like really organ, organ trio-y kind of playing. Um, uh, I've been listening to in the non-jazz kind of stream of things, uh, Gumbo Unplugged by uh, PJ Morton. Um, really, really digging on that. Just, just ridiculous. Um, so, so incredible. Uh, I've been also hitting up um, like some of Jason Chu's recent projects, um, you know, from a, like a hip hop vein. Um, and then um, one of the people that I had the opportunity to collaborate with for my album release is uh, uh, Prisca, um, Priscilla Liang. Um, and she actually, her, like, her music has been really inspiring to me over the past week or so. Um, and I've been kind of obsessing with it. And she does like a lot of covers. Um, so from, from like a songwriting standpoint, um, uh, I accidentally today even uh, misattributed a song to her. Um, that was actually Shawn Mendes, um, but you know what? I her like her her voice and the way that she sings these songs and takes like ownership of them 
has been like so so like um like it just it just gets me like right in here um and so that's kind of what i've been listening to uh recently do i get to ask you guys the same question because i'm really curious yeah we're turn about totally, fair play yeah, yeah you totally beat us because we usually only like say one thing <laughs> Well, that's because I don't always have an attention span. So like sometimes, um, you know, especially if I have a long drive, I'll like try to put like multiple records like back to back. But yeah, we will, yeah. we'll go ahead and share ours. Uh, Robbie, why don't you get started? You seemed ready. Yeah, I got my phone. <laughs> I got to always get my phone out to search through what I listen to. Well, one thing I listened to a lot this week and I sort of come back to the Milt Jackson album, Sunflower. Uh, Milt Jackson for our audience, very famous vibraphone player, really big bebop player especially lots of great albums with all the greats and sunflower is kind of unique because it's a later album and he's playing with people who are younger or younger than him younger generations got herbie hancock and ron carter and a few others and it's much more sort of pushing in the direction of their music than what you traditionally hear from milt jackson it's not you know not bebop tunes many much more of that sort of funk or fusion influence stuff um and it's really interesting to hear a player like Milt Jackson in those situations, uh, you know, I'm always yeah. interested to hear players kind of how they develop, you know, things they try out, even if it maybe sometimes isn't quite as smoothly as, as maybe it could be. I think it's always really interesting to hear. And I think in this case, maybe not all of them, all of the tracks are a hundred percent. I think there's a lot of interesting music there though, especially if you're a fan of Milt Jackson and his playing. Mine's uh, kind of a repeat but i've just been really digging the uh it's basically it seems like the big tracks from his album are already out he says he's going to release it like later in the month or in the month of april um but porter jackson not porter jackson porter robinson has been putting out like tracks percy jackson. a lot of them yeah I, I don't know why i just combined percy jackson and porter robinson <laughs> it's definitely the ends with sun but anyway, yeah, Porter Robinson's been putting out some really great singles, and I'm, I'm just like a huge fan of his his like style of electronic music, but also using like acoustic acoustic instruments. I've been particularly taken by um, "Look at the Sky," but aside from Porter Robinson, because I talked about him like a week or so ago, um, someone turned me on to this independent Korean rapper called Yuzion Y U Z Y U Z I O N, and like. Yeah, it's been really cool again seeing like the less mainstream artists that and like what they're up to. But yeah, that's me. What about you, Eric? Yeah, so I'm cheating a little bit because I'm just starting to delve into this album. Um, it just came out, I think, earlier this week. It's called Rediscovered, um, and it is a series of clarinet concertos, specifically British clarinet concertos oh. that have been rediscovered. Um, by, and they're all performed by Peter Seglaris, who is a um, kind of international soloist based in, I think he's based in London. Um, and so this was really a passion project of his. And um, he, he just got a mention in like the clarinet and saxophone journal for it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to dig into these. Well, basically what this podcast is all about, like, you know, undiscovered, That's you know, right. unknown works or works that have been kind of lost. So um super excited for that. That's called Rediscovered. They missed, I'm going to go check all this stuff out. 
they really missed out on a fantastic chance to have it read Discovery Art. <laughs> oh my gosh, they did. <laughs> <laughs> you say it like that, and oh, it's such a missed opportunity. Right. Well, uh, I heard you just you just pronounced it like you were like that's rediscovered, rediscovered, and I was like somebody missed it's that right chance. there yeah. it's right there yeah. that's the problem Staring with classical music the no marketing sense well that was like um i saw these <laughs> i saw this tweet and it's like yeah if your concert series involves overly performed work reimagined then like you've already lost my interest you know like how many of those have we seen brahms reimagined <laughs> but then like completely unrelated it's like man Whoever didn't think to call astronomy science. Science. That's pretty but, funny. Uh, oh, science. Come on. Anyway, I think that yeah. covers all the podcast stuff, right? Thanks, everyone, for listening to our episode. And thanks again to Jordan. It was so great to have you on and to hear all you had to say. We really you know, got a lot out of it. And I'm sure our audience will really enjoy all the things you have to say, along with your wonderful album. So thank you again. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I will take any opportunity to nerd out about music. Uh, and, and honestly, it's like a breath of fresh air. So to talk to you guys. Oh, well, we're very glad and very happy to have you. So yeah. you can uh, find all of Jordan's stuff. He's J Van, uh, J Van He. Should, is, that, is that how it's pronounced? J Van He Yeah, music. at J Van He Music. Uh, yeah, at Jay Van Heer Music on Facebook and Instagram and jordanvanhemert.com, youtube.com slash jordanvanhemert uh, is where you can find Jordan and all his projects. And we'll have those also in our podcast notes and, and you know anywhere we post this. Uh, but yeah, and you can connect with us at Drop Haystack on Twitter and Drop the Needle in the Haystack on Twitter or on um, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Eric, can you take us out? As always... Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next week.